Hello, and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here. And I'm Brent Sanders. We are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies. Yeah, and we were just talking about diligence a minute ago, and I think that's what we're going to talk about in this this episode is, is you raised an interesting question. I'll, I'll have you repeat it, which we go through a normal diligence process. We try to do it quickly, right? We've done, we had, we've done deals where it's been like up to 90 days, but normally it's our usual deal size. It's like a quick close 30 days of diligence and boom, we're closed, which I feel like is sufficient, but also, I don't know, sufficient and efficient at the same time. It's, but it, it, it doesn't feel like a ton of work. It, it is concentrated work and makes me sleep at night on these deals. But you were kind of mentioning Warren Buffett and he, he's got a little bit of a different approach. What was it? So I guess back it up a little bit. Like I have friends that work at the high priced law firms that do these like multi-billion dollar deals. And he says like the ideal length for a transaction is like a, a year where they do all this right. insane diligence. And I would say most private equity folks will be like 60 to 120 days. And people call mm -hmm. it like a proctology exam. Like it's just brutal for everyone involved. Often private equity will use it to give like really nice high number at the start and then use it all to like haggle and renegotiate as they find your weaknesses. It's just like a miserable process that takes months and months and months. And so the other side of that is Warren Buffett. So back in 1967, he bought National Indemnity and he did it on a one and a half page like purchase agreement which I read through and it was just like the most basic things for a $70 million deal. And it was like a handshake and it was done in like a few days. So, I mean, we don't have 200 page purchase agreements, but like ours is 10 pages. Like, is there any reason it has to all be that long? And do we have to go so crazy on diligence or could we really do it in like 24 hours and get the, like the 95% part that matters or 99%? Like, what are we really concerned about? Yeah. I mean, and we see there's other players in the space that buy, I don't want to say recklessly, but like they like it, they get, they kind of fall in love with it and then either don't use attorneys and just buy something and take it over. And then it either collapses and they're okay with it. They just know, okay, this is the risk. I, I would say the first, the first part of this is like, are you using your money or using other people's money? And true, I would assume Warren Buffett was using his money. I don't uh, know much. No, no? He, he started managing other people's money you know, at like 25 years old. Oh, so wow. okay. he did have outside investors. Like that is the other side is you have a fiduciary duty and saying like, I had a good feeling about those guys is probably not good enough <laughs> uh, <laughs> for a deal that blows up. So I understand that part of like, you got to check all the boxes and cover your ass. But I do wonder, I mean, he's able to get away with it. Yeah. The other thing that I would say that we've run into firsthand is sometimes timing is important in keeping that window open longer. So there's an inverse relationship in my mind between the length of time a deal takes to close and its propensity to close, right? Like it's the more time that you leave it open, the more chances you're going to find things, the more problems can come, the better the chances it's going to blow up and, and basically fall apart. So I, I would say there's there's an element of this as if, if like you're getting a good deal. So for example, if I was Warren Buffett in this situation and I like knew this was a, you know, let's say it's a hundred million dollar business. And so I'm basically getting at a, a pretty significant discount that no matter what I find, I'm going to be able to fix it with that discount. Like, all right, maybe I would have found something and, and I would have called it out and I would have done it for 68 million. But like, I think that's where 
I could see us doing something like that where it's like, oh my God, this is an amazing business. I don't care what's lurking. I don't care if there's licensing issues. I don't care if there's broken software or whatever. It we're we're gonna we're getting an amazing deal and we struck the deal and you gotta strike while it's hot. And that's when you're probably gonna want to keep things vague and just <laughs> maybe not. I mean, I don't even know what attorney would do a two page APA, but sometimes what do you what do we say? It's like we start talking to the attorneys on a deal. We're all hot on it. Like, don't fuck this up for us. Like, we, we want to <laughs> yeah. do it. Like, don't kill this deal. We want it, which is probably just taking that to an extreme. But also maybe, maybe it's a little leave it to Beaver or we're just going to be men of our word and have a handshake. But that that doesn't carry any weight in this world, in my mind. It's like, so that, that would be my only way that I could see us doing something like that is like, if we were just no, we're getting an amazing deal and we're whatever problem we find, we can just smooth over it with tons of cash because that's what we're acquiring. Like that would be the only case. Cause yeah, we ran into like at the end of, I mean, it's always at the end because it's the situations, especially like on licensing, it just takes a long time to, to work through those things. And sometimes you can have a licensing agreement or like you have proper licensing, but you actually take the time to talk to the other holder, right? Like, who holds this license and how do they see enforcement? You know, how do they see the license agreement we have? Do they think it's in perpetuity? I mean, we, we have to renew it, let's say every year. Are they going to renew it next year? I mean, those are kind of things that it, it does make sense to, to do. So I don't know. I would disagree. I think it's, it makes sense to do it. it there's a reason this stuff takes so long and, and obviously we're not doing huge deals, so it doesn't make sense to do it for a year. That being said, for us to get things done in 30 days, which I think is a may seem reckless to some folks, like we get all the important stuff done right away. Like within the first week, we know if we're gonna. I I know that we're gonna do it from a tech perspective, like at least from and I, licensing aside of the tech, like what shape it's in. You can see those characteristics, and maybe that comes with age, but you can see those characteristics right away. Yeah, I think what matters, like what actually matters, I guess on my end, the tech is a little different, different, but I'd say, do we trust them? Like, do we have a good feel for the person? Do we think they're honest? And I think I could figure that out almost immediately in the first call. Like I've had calls with sellers where it's like, this guy is brutal to deal with like three minutes in and <laughs> he's like kind of on his best behavior because he's trying to sell me something. It's just going to be worse and worse trying to do diligence with them. So like I could kill that pretty quick. And then are the numbers roughly right is what matters to me. So I could trace the revenue pretty easily. Most people are using like Stripe or something like it. And that is that hitting the bank account? Are the customers real? Are they trying to fake it somehow? Costs are a little trickier. So in theory, it's all like on the credit card and then you can see it on the bank account. But if someone could definitely own an agency on the side, that's like doing work for it. And so we think the cost structure is one way. It's actually some way different, or they could have like I don't know, a huge ad spend that they're doing secretly with a different account. So hopefully I can mm -hmm. uncover that. I, I'm much more concerned on the cost side. I, I think it'd be pretty hard to trick me on the revenue side. Besides that, are there any big other risks? So have they signed like crazy contracts? Do they owe people money? Are they being sued? Like, is there some hidden licensing thing that's going to kill us? Or are they like selling drugs or some other independent business that's going to destroy us? But I really think like you could do all that basically in 24 hours. Like I, I maybe it's like irrational confidence that we could fix the other issues that are operationally in the business. But I also wonder like if you're just covering for like the 0.1% edge cases that don't really ever matter. Maybe, maybe. And I would say it's 
not 0.1%. My sense is that's more like 10%. I think your orders of magnitude off, but like mm-hmm. 10% of cases where there's something swept under the rug. And by the way, we're playing in a unique space where these are usually companies with minimal employees. So yeah, I think once you start throwing more people in, then it's like, well, who are these people? Are they related to you? Are you, you know, like somehow deferring income or, or, you know, taking earnings through salaries of your wife, like it's a no-show job or something like there's all sorts of kooky stuff people do. There's so also it's very nice. few assets. I mean, it's a very, it's like yes. a much less complex business, but we also don't have to go be like, do they actually have these 20 trucks that they said they had? Uh, so it's like, we do it from our computers and there aren't many moving parts or many employees. So mm-hmm. it's definitely simpler, which is, I guess, another argument in my favor. Like it should be far simpler than most private equity deals. Yeah. And so the second part to this that's interesting is, could you come up with an APA? So the one thing we want to assume here, we're just buying the assets. We're not going to buy any of the liabilities, which makes this all a lot easier. And we've had LOIs that 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 gets kind of stuffed up where it's like, well, we specifically, I think there was a European company we're looking at. It's like they wanted us to not do an APA. And every attorney was like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. So the assumption is these are always, you're just buying the assets. And that covers you like a fair amount, right? And then I think just having like, if you had a nice set of warrants that were like standard, that were like, okay, you either have proof of this at at the first 24 hour mark, like just like you were saying, you, you give me Stripe access and let's say they have another payment processor that they don't give us access to. It's like, well, we would want a warrant for say, giving these assumptions. And then it, it's it starts to get tricky, but I would love it if there was like, and I feel like we're getting closer to it on each deal, but just like a standard boilerplate APA that's like, here's the structure, here are the things you either you check all these boxes or we can't do the deal. And, and the diligence is, it's important and we, it's thorough, but it's also like, to your point, I think we kind of know pretty early on if it's going to play out, right? If it's, if it smells and looks and all the traits that we look for are like there from the beginning. Because I, I would say like we never buy anything that's perfect, right? We we just don't transact on that that level, and I don't think anybody does, right? It's like you're gonna get in there, you're gonna find things wrong with the tech, you're gonna find things wrong with customer support, you're gonna find things wrong, and that's that's kind of what you're buying. Like you 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 have to obviously price it according, but we do, and I kind of expect okay, we're gonna get something that it's got a bunch of tech debt. It's from a either a bootstrap founder or something that made it work, but now it's, we're going to try to put on a different trajectory. So there's a certain amount of acceptable risk with that, which is like, okay, the code base is X, Y, Z old, or there's bugs. And and so that's where I think going through support, like going through their support tickets and conversations, that's where there's, I think a lot of really interesting stuff to, to, to actually eke out more, more so even than the code base, because the code base, it's like, you can you can go through every line, but you can also do it in a way that's like, characteristically, this all looks good. Yeah, it sounds like MicroAcquire is doing something in this space now where they're trying to help sellers transact. Yeah, and so they do, we haven't used them yet, but they do have like built-in LOIs and built-in APAs. Yeah, maybe that is the solution. Like there's no negotiation on our deals anymore. We just use that. You know, I think our lawyers would hate us, but they seem to hate us for most things we try to do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think that's probably good. I mean, micro requires becoming more and more trusted. Like you could use that. That would be an easy way to do it. 
I think the um, other thing that's interesting to to tinker with a little bit is like the terms. Like you could be a little bit looser with this as well as if you're tying the seller to an earnout or something that's tied to either performance or yeah, performance of the business or or the code, which I couldn't imagine like holding somebody to that. But you know, you can you can structure a deal that's like has that added security. But I don't feel like that's fair, right? Like we always come to that realization of like if the, the company, let's say it, it it's growing at 15% a month or whatever, some amazing amount where it's like, great, this is doing great. Then the you buy the business. You, if it doesn't continue, that's kind of on you. It's not really the, the founder's gone unless they're staying on, of course. Yeah. Earnouts always seem like a theoretical thing to me. People talk about them all the time. We've never had one. And it seems like if you even throw it out, people aren't entertaining it. Like it's, I think it's just a tough thing to pull off. You know, yeah. For me, I guess, and for us and for our deals, the way it works, I think we've covered maybe in the past, but it, I, I send an email basically outlining the terms that matter. And then they agree or disagree. And then you start papering it. And the way we do deals, like after that point, nothing should change. Like mm -hmm. I know other P firms will try to haggle and like renegotiate, but unless we find something really uh, detrimental, I'd say more likely than not, we just kill the deal. Or if some reason the revenue is off by like 10% or 20% and everyone was just made like a honest mistake, I think you just mark the deal down 10, 20%. But yeah, ideally nothing changes after that, like kind of handshake deal is done. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we, we've talked about this before. I would rather kill a deal than go back to someone and be like, eh, like this and that and, and try to nickel and dime or seek remedies for things. It's like, I'd rather just not do the deal. I know that sounds right. crazy because you're burning time that you put into it, but in a perfect world, you come back to it a year later and they fix those things and you, you come to a new LOI. Yeah. We really, I'd say that's, that's indicative of, of the acquisition strategy and the brand just being like straightforward and if and if we can't make it work we can't make it work but ideally we close all the lois we we put out yeah so uh, statistically only 25 percent of lois close in our space which sounds completely wild i mean it's certainly not the case for us but that is the actual situation on the ground hmm. there's some metaphor for marriage or dating or something there that it probably could be equated but i mean it's it's hard i mean it's uh you're you're this is for most sellers this is like the biggest deal they'll they'll do to date in their life for us it's no small task either like it's no small like to as we look at taking over like what i think about the most when doing diligence is not like oh well this code has this risk or that it's it's like what is it going to be day-to-day to support this what is this thing going to need what's you know what do we have that that can already support it and usually i get really excited because i'm like oh we have support we have this we have that we have these resources that we can apply that this founder never had the ability to or resources or it's just a different structure right it's like a totally different vessel for this business to kind of latch onto. so i guess when the when those things aren't feeling good and those things aren't feeling like it is it's a fit then i mean ideally we we thought about that already pre-loi yeah, I think the reality in all our deals is like, we're not going to make 10 or 20% on any deal. Like the the marginal stuff just doesn't matter. And if people, mm. you'll get really into the minor details, like maybe it's worth just rolling over. Because for us, if we're going to do a deal, I mean, we're going to pay off whatever we put into it within a few years. And then it's just cash flowing. Like, and that is 
we're going to five, five X their money, 10 X their money over time. And like the little stuff, it almost doesn't matter. What matters more so is like just getting the deal done, like getting yeah. in the game. And then from there, we have a lot of growth that we could, we could do and like the skills and the confidence to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that we should like, as, as a kind of takeaway from this conversation, we should try to see if we can come up with a more like, I don't want to say systematized APA, but like, man, it would be nice to just like start to continue refining that agreement. So it's like, we send it, we sign the LOI and like send that right over rather than call the attorney, explain all the characteristics. It's like, no, it, everything should kind of fall into this one. And maybe that'll start happening naturally. I, I know some attorneys have no problem just copy and pasting the last one they did. And okay, here you go. Here's well, your, here's your yeah. standard terms. I, I think our attorneys are certainly down for that. I mean, that's how they operate is basically off templates. I don't know how to control the other side. Like I want to say no, like no red lines on this LOI. We're just not going to do it. It's a fair LOI. Like it's very simple. And this is the APA we've used for the last 10 deals. And we're not going to take your 80% red lines. It's not acceptable. I, but I don't know. That, that seems like you got to have a hundred deals under your belt or something to get to that point where you could say that. Yeah. Thinking about that. And like, that's the point at which you probably pick up the phone, right? If there's 80% or a whole bunch of red lines. And it's like, I used to always think on these types of deals. And I, I'm not so sure that I've really changed my thinking, but it's like, get on the phone with the, the other party and get business alignment, like get the business part, come to agreement. But the, the reality of that is then we both go to our attorneys and the attorneys are like, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And that's when you know, I've, I've gone through deals. It's like, okay, well, let's just get the attorneys together, which feels like the worst idea. Cause then they're just gonna, they really can't make decisions. They can just raise points and it's, at the end of the day, it's risk. And I think to your point, it boils all the way back down to trust. It's like, do you trust this person? You don't know them. Like, we don't really know the sellers that well before we do a deal with them. And that's where I think when I, when we start the LOI process, like, I think that's where we have to just do more education and say, you know, this is how it works. This is how we work. This is typically what the process is like. And then by the way, like here's some past sellers we've worked with, like talk to them, like mm -hmm. go chat with them, see what they thought of us. I don't know if that will like just having references may help build trust a little bit. I mean, it would be nice to like find a way to, to build that trust. But in my mind, like reputation is the only way to do that or get somebody really comfortable knowing. Cause it's like, yeah, otherwise we're just like two dudes from the internet that are like on software business marketplaces which is usually a pretty shady place to spend your time with folks so i get why people are probably pretty apprehensive but it's also their baby they're they're like livelihood and it, this is a meaningful amount this is not like this is this is a nice chunk in their retirement or potentially a life-changing amount of money for them so yeah i get it it's high stakes and i think people only go through it a couple times in their life at at most like the average person probably doesn't sell business, but the average business owner is probably only going to sell their business once, maybe, maybe go through it twice, unless you're deal junkies like us and just want to do it all the time. Yeah, I'd say I, I, for most people, this will be the biggest transaction of their life, unless they end up buying like a really nice house, like this will be bigger than any house or purchase or sale that they ever do. And they won't do it a bunch. Like they'll probably buy or sell three homes or something in their lives. They'll probably only sell one business or two businesses. That, yeah. I, go ahead. 
I was just saying home buying is like heavily regulated. Like it goes very, there's easy ways to get out. There's, you know, no one, I mean, there obviously it goes sideways for some people, but it, it's pretty, pretty clean and been legislated in such a way that no one, no one's really going to get, no one's going to go to zero because they negotiated something poorly. Yeah. Unless, and unless you moved on top of like a burial ground or something. On the lawyer front, I think I've made this mistake before where you let lawyers talk. Now I'm of the mindset oh. that lawyers should never talk. Like they are just oh, yeah. become too combative too quickly. And I think it should, should always be like the business to business sending things back and forth, even if that frustrates the lawyers. It's like you lose the humanity and things get very combative very quickly when lawyers are just throwing red lines back and forth. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've gotten to a, a case, I think, with our attorneys where it's like, they know when, okay, the business has to make a decision. You guys, these are the terms. Here's the spectrum of this type of language and i'm going to give you something down the middle and that's the other thing that i think we do well with is like i mean i don't think we are like hard negotiators on anything we go try to just be down the middle down the fairway and i appreciate we we've dealt with other parties that do the same and i like that scores instant points on a deal with us is like if you're throwing stuff right down the fairway and or even if it's like on the fringes and you're just not throwing stuff that's like completely non-standard when stuff comes out non-standard i that's when i get like the chills being like oh no this isn't gonna work like and and i think we've had sellers that their attorney for better or worse like they're they're doing a great job protecting them but they're like overprotective and they're they haven't done this type of like a business transaction or they've done a transaction on a way different scale where it's like they're expecting different things and yeah it's it's a bummer when it happens and we can't really do anything. Like I would love to say, Hey, here's a Rolodex of great attorneys, but it's like, who's going to, I mean, they're not going to trust us. That's even shadier. Like <laughs> here, yeah. here's a list of attorneys <laughs> that we like, but I, I think there's a nice way to say that, which is like, would you mind has your, before you get started, has your attorney done X, Y, Z transaction? What are the typical size transactions? Just so you know what you're getting into, but we're kind of powerless. It's like who they trust, who they want to, decide to use yeah i mean maybe it goes back to a trusted third party it's like micro choir like mm -hmm. maybe they have service providers on there maybe you tell people to go pick one of the five highly rated service providers or something and that would be a way to save ourselves yeah we we've got a i'm sure we'll do one but we've got to use their platform it'd be great to see if it reduces the the friction i mean in like by the way we're what are we two years into this like I don't feel like the acquisitions there are super difficult. Like they're definitely getting easier as we've gone. But yeah, we said this from the beginning. There's there's so much room for disruption to just like make this a a fair, equitable transaction, especially especially on the sub million dollar level of transaction. Yeah, where the acquisition or like transaction costs just get too high to like justify. Yeah. Like if we were buying a app for $5,000, I mean, you can't spend $3,000 in lawyer fees. It doesn't make any sense. I, I was reading this book and they said, actually like emails back and forth where people approve things, like that is sufficient for legal standing for smaller transactions. Sure. Like you don't need yeah. crazy documentation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's correspondence. It's similar to putting things in writing, I suppose. I mean, it's it'll be interesting to see if, I, I, yeah, I'm excited to try out what, whatever microquire is going to do. I'm sure we'll get a chance to use. Any other thoughts on diligence? Otherwise, I had a funny idea on fundraising that I was going to run. No, by that's you. it. 
Yeah, let's hear it. So I think the way to fundraise is first go to Puerto Rico, where everyone is trying to avoid paying taxes and they're all waiting for big (laughs) liquidity events. (laughs) Just set up shop. Yeah. I mean, Uh, you could set up an office like a barbershop or something and just just hang out there and be like, you have some liquid capital. It's it's coming in or you're you're holding on to. So we have I, I. this is a little insulting, so I can't say the actual name, but there is a billionaire founder that you know, and I can tell you later, or founder of a unicorn company. And everyone kind of called him an idiot, like in the local scene, but he was very, very good at going to conferences in his space and just hanging out at the bar. And that's how he struck like monster partnerships and raised big, like good amount of money. It's just like wow. hanging out, being likable and like meeting the right people. I, I do think there's something to that for like fundraising. Like, I think I have to move to the suburbs, join like the most expensive country club. I don't even golf, but, <laughs> and just hang out there all day and like befriend all the old guys with money. And I think that's probably your best bet for fundraising. Oh, geez. That sounds terrible. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a waste of money. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I would say there is always something in any career, whether it's fundraising or not, just being likable, but be, like being a good hang, like that's been... That's been an important aspect to my music career, which a long time ago was, I was never the best at anything, but you know, if you're friendly with the the guys that are, they want you to come on tour with them or they want you to like go to the show. And it's like, who cares? It's, it's different than fundraising, but there's something to liking the people that you work with and, and enjoying to spend time with them. I mean, when it comes to schmoozing people, like I think that investors, I should say, I think sophisticated investors don't really want the guy that's hanging out at the country club because they're like, what is he doing here all the time? Like, why is he here? Shouldn't he be working? Shouldn't he be growing that company? But yeah, I think the Puerto Rico thing's for sure. Like that's, there's a ton of capital there. There's a ton of people just kind of hanging out and waiting for a time to go by on their, their liquidity event. Uh, yeah, there's very different levels of like sophistication within family offices. I think a lot of them do make more emotional decisions just like, I like that guy. I trust him. His returns have been something. And it, it's, I don't know. We didn't come from this world. It's crazy how much money is out there and how quickly we'll make people will make like million dollar decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, going back to a prior episode, the fundraising journey is, is very interesting. And I think what it is, is heavily reputational, right? Like I think, especially for, for folks like us who don't really have really big track record we can point to like what we're doing now and what we've done in the past but you can point to hey talk to so and so talk to see what they say about me and i think one of the most gratifying things that i've had in my career that i continue to to get a ton of gratification out of is just connecting people right and so my hope is and, and largely what a lot of the connections i've made in the past have been like between different operators or more on like maybe the executive level of like hey you should talk to so and so and man it's what a great feeling when like those people end up building something and then being successful. But then I just think that stuff kind of comes back to you. And so I guess it's karmic, but you got to be like steadily putting it out there that you're like doing this thing. You can't just expect people to know that you're fundraising or you're working on something. You really have to, to market it a bit. I wouldn't even call it market. Just talk about what you're up to and let, you know, I don't know if you ever do this. Do you send random emails to kind of old people that you haven't, that you like that you haven't seen, haven't worked with in a while and just be like, Hey, reaching out, this is what I'm up to. Some of those emails or conversations are like the most fruitful. It's like, yeah, we haven't spoken in two years, but this is what I'm doing. Hope you're well. We'd love to hear what you're up to. And it's like, 
sometimes great opportunities come out of those things. And, and it's all people. Like at the end of the day, the business is all people. It's software, but it's people. It's people. Yeah. I should be better about that. I receive a good amount of them, but I, I should probably be better at staying in touch with folks. Yeah. The booth kids are usually really good about that, right? There's, there's like a tight knit community and then from your undergrad as well, or is this from, from past gigs? Just throughout, I just meet a lot of interesting people. I think a podcast, like I should have just more people and like have those live conversations is something I've been meaning to do or like you meet people on Twitter, but yeah, business school, undergrad for sure. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm a little better at those than other ones, but yeah, that's all I got. Anything else with you? Cool. No, no, this has been interesting. Uh, cool. Well, until next week, take care. Take care. Thanks for listening.